Commonwealth versus Perry. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. was appointed to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in 1882. He was then 41 years of age and had just completed a single term as Weld Professor of Law at the Harvard Law School. He was to serve the Massachusetts bench for 20 years before Supreme Court. During this time, his short, concise opinions became a hallmark of his judicial style of writing, where other judges spent pages developing a line of reasoning Holmes cut through the thicket of irrelevant facts and arguments and went immediately to the main issue to be resolved in as few words as were necessary to reach his goal. An early example of his spare style is to be found in a case decided in 1885, Commonwealth versus Perry. Josiah Perry was convicted of maintaining a public nuisance the complaint against him charged that the said Perry, near the dwelling houses of diverse good citizens, and also near diverse public streets and common highways, then and there did keep and maintain a large number of swine, to wit, five hundred, by reason whereof diverse large quantities of noisome, noxious, and unwholesome smokes, smells, and stenches on the days and time aforesaid, there and then, were emitted, sent forth, and issued, and the air thereabouts was greatly filled and impregnated with many noisome, offensive, and unwholesome smells, stinks, and stenches, and has been corrupted and rendered very insalubrious to the great damage and common nuisance of all the citizens of said commonwealth. Holmes wrote the following opinion, which we hear in its entirety. A piggery in which swine are kept in such numbers that their natural odors fill the air thereabouts and make the occupation of the neighboring houses and passage over the adjacent highways disagreeable or worse is a nuisance. The indictment was sufficient and the instructions asked were erroneous. No defect has been pointed out in the instructions given. It would have been well if they had impressed more fully on the jury that the question was one of degree, but that was implied by what was said and the defendant asked for nothing more specific. Evidence of the practice throughout the Commonwealth was inadmissible. Vegelon versus Guntner. In 1896, Holmes wrote a great dissent, boldly espousing the right of workers in Massachusetts to organize and carry on peaceful picketing. The social theories he expressed were unpopular, but he was obliged to make them known. In a case like the present, it seems to me that whatever the true result may be, it will be of advantage to sound thinking to have the less popular view of the law stated. It cannot be said, I think, that two men walking together up and down a sidewalk 
and speaking to those who enter a certain shop do necessarily and always thereby convey a threat of force. I do not think it possible to discriminate and to say that two workmen or even two representatives of an organization of workmen do, especially when they are and are known to be under the injunction of this court not to do so. I agree, whatever may be the law in the case of a single defendant, that when a plaintiff proves that several persons have combined and conspired to injure his business and have done acts producing that effect, he shows temporal damage and a cause of action. Unless the facts disclose or the defendants prove some ground of excuse or justification, and I take it to be settled, and rightly settled, that doing that damage by combined persuasions is actionable, as well as doing it by falsehood or by force. Nevertheless, in numberless instances, the law warrants the intentional infliction of temporal damage because it regards it as justified. It is on the question of what shall amount to a justification and more especially on the nature of the considerations which really determine or ought to determine the answer to that question, that judicial reasoning seems to me often to be inadequate. The true grounds of decision are considerations of policy and of social advantage, and it is vain to suppose that solutions can be attained merely by logic and general propositions of law which nobody disputes. Propositions as to public policy rarely are unanimously accepted, and still more rarely, if ever, are capable of unanswerable proof. They require a special training to enable anyone even to form an intelligent opinion about them. In the early stages of law, at least, they generally are acted on rather as inarticulate instincts than as definite ideas for which a rational defense is ready. It has been the law for centuries that a man may set up a business in a small country town, too small to support more than one, although thereby he expects and intends to ruin someone already there and succeeds in his intent. In such a case, he is not held to act unlawfully and without justifiable cause. The reason, of course, is that the doctrine generally has been accepted that free competition is worth more to society than it costs, and that on this ground the infliction of the damage is privileged. Yet even this proposition nowadays is disputed by a considerable body of persons, including many whose intelligence is not to be denied, little as we may agree with them. I've chosen this illustration partly with reference to what I have to say next. It shows, without the need of further authority, that the policy of allowing free competition justifies the intentional inflicting of temporal damage, including the damage of interference with a man's business by some means, when the damage is done not for its own sake, but as an instrumentality in reaching the end of victory in the battle of trade. In such a case, it cannot matter whether the plaintiff is the only rival of the defendant, and so is aimed at specially, or is one of a class, all of whom are hit. The only debatable ground is the nature of the means by which such damage may be inflicted. 
We all agree that it cannot be done by force or threats of force. We all agree, I presume, that it may be done by persuasion to leave a rival's shop and come to the defendants. It may be done by the refusal or withdrawal of various pecuniary advantages, which, apart from this consequence, are within the defendant's lawful control. It may be done by the withdrawal of or threat to withdraw such advantages from third persons who have a right to deal or not to deal with the plaintiff as a means of inducing them not to deal with him, either as customers or servants. I have seen the suggestion made that the conflict between employers and employed was not competition. But I venture to assume that none of my brethren would rely on that suggestion. If the policy on which our law is founded is too narrowly expressed in the term free competition, we may substitute free struggle for life. Certainly, the policy is not limited to struggles between persons of the same class competing for the same end. It applies to all conflicts of temporal interest. I pause here to remark that the word threats often is used as if when it appeared that threats had been made. It appeared that unlawful conduct had begun. But it depends on what you threaten. As a general rule, even if subject to some exceptions, what you may do in a certain event, you may threaten to do, that is, give warning of your intention to do in that event and thus allow the other person the chance of avoiding the consequence. So as to compulsion, it depends on how you compel. There is a notion which latterly has been insisted on a good deal, that a combination of persons to do what any one of them lawfully might do by himself will make the otherwise lawful conduct unlawful. It would be rash to say that some as yet unformulated truth may not be hidden under this proposition, but in the general form in which it has been presented and accepted by many courts, I think it plainly untrue, both on authority and principle. It is not necessary to cite cases. It is plain from the slightest consideration of practical affairs or the most superficial reading of industrial history that free competition means combination and that the organization of the world, now going on so fast, means an ever-increasing might and scope of combination. It seems to me futile to set our faces against this tendency. Whether beneficial on the whole, as I think it, or detrimental, it is inevitable unless the fundamental axioms of society and even the fundamental conditions of life are to be changed. One of the eternal conflicts out of which life is made up is that between the effort of every man to get the most he can for his services and that of society, disguised under the name of capital, to get his services for the least possible return. Combination on the one side is patent and powerful. Combination on the other is the necessary and desirable counterpart if the battle is to be carried on in a fair and equal way. If it be true that working men may combine with a view, among other things, to getting as much as they can for their labor, just as capital may combine with a view to getting the greatest possible return, it must be true that when combined, they have the same liberty 
that combined capital has to support their interests by argument, persuasion, and the bestowal or refusal of those advantages which they otherwise lawfully control. I can remember when many people thought that, apart from violence or breach of contract, strikes were wicked as organized refusals to work. I suppose that intelligent economists and legislators have given up that notion today. I feel pretty confident that they equally will abandon the idea that an organized refusal by workmen of social intercourse with a man who shall enter their antagonist's employ is unlawful if it is dissociated from any threat of violence and is made for the sole object of prevailing, if possible, in a contest with their employer about the rate of wages. The general question of the propriety of dealing with this kind of case by injunction, I say nothing about, because I understand that the defendant's objection to the final decree if it goes no further, and that both parties wish a decision upon the matters which I have discussed. Lochner versus New York. In 1902, Holmes was appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States. One of the early decisions of note which he delivered as a member of this court was the case of Lochner versus New York. New York had passed a law in 1897 dealing with the health and welfare of bakery workers, providing, among other things, for a 10-hour day and a 60-hour week. In 1905, the case came before the High Court for review. In a 5-4 to four decision, the law was declared to be invalid. The majority decision invoked the liberty of contract theory, which at that time enjoyed a certain following in judicial circles, to the effect that the right of a business or an individual to contract with others ought not to be interfered with except under the most extreme circumstances. The court found that the bakery business was no more dangerous to a worker's health than other businesses. Hence, the police power of the state could not be used to disturb the sanctity of the employer-employee relationship. Holmes took strong exception to the liberty of contract theory in a dissenting opinion. I regret sincerely that I am unable to agree with the judgment in this case, and that I think it my duty to express my dissent. This case is decided upon an economic theory which a large part of the country does not entertain. If it were a question whether I agreed with that theory, I should desire to study it further and long before making up my mind. But I do not conceive that to be my duty, because I strongly believe that my agreement or disagreement has nothing to do with the right of a majority to embody their opinions in law. It is settled by various decisions of this court that state constitutions and state laws may regulate life in many ways which we as legislators might think as injudicious, or if you like, as tyrannical as this, and which equally, with this, interfere with the liberty to contract. Sunday laws and usury laws are ancient examples. A more modern one is the prohibition of lotteries. 
the liberty of the citizen to do as he likes so long as he does not interfere with the liberty of others to do the same, which has been a shibboleth for some well-known writers, is interfered with by school laws, by the post office, by every state or municipal institution which takes his money for purposes thought desirable, whether he likes it or not. The Fourteenth Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. The other day, we sustained the Massachusetts vaccination law. United States and state statutes and decisions cutting down the liberty to contract by way of combination are familiar to this court. Two years ago, we upheld the prohibition of sales of stock on margins or for future delivery in the Constitution of California. The decision sustaining an eight-hour law for minors is still recent. Some of these laws embody convictions or prejudices which judges are likely to share. Some may not. But a constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory, whether of paternalism and the organic relation of the citizen to the state or of laissez-faire. It is made for people of fundamentally differing views, and the accident of our finding certain opinions natural and familiar or novel and even shocking, ought not to conclude our judgment upon the question whether statutes embodying them conflict with the Constitution of the United States. General propositions do not decide concrete cases. The decision will depend on a judgment or intuition more subtle than any articulate major premise. But I think that the proposition just stated, if it is accepted, will carry us far toward the end. Every opinion tends to become a law. I think that the word liberty in the 14th Amendment is perverted when it is held to prevent the natural outcome of a dominant opinion, unless it can be said that a rational and fair man necessarily would admit that the statute proposed would infringe fundamental principles as they have been understood by the traditions of our people and our law. Does not need research to show that no such sweeping condemnation can be passed upon the statute before us. A reasonable man might think it a proper measure on the score of health. Men whom I certainly could not pronounce unreasonable would uphold it as a first installment of a general regulation of the hours of work. Whether in the latter aspect it would be open to the charge of inequality, I think it unnecessary to discuss. Hammer versus Dagenhart. The first child labor case to come before the United States Supreme Court involved the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Two children between the ages of 13 and 16 had been employed in a North Carolina cotton mill which shipped its goods across state lines. At issue was the constitutionality of a federal law passed in 1916 prohibiting transportation in interstate commerce of the products of such an establishment which employed child labor. In a five to four decision, the law was held to, quote, exceed the constitutional authority of Congress, end of quote. Holmes spoke.
for the four dissenting justices. The single question in this case is whether Congress has power to prohibit the shipment in interstate or foreign commerce of any product of a cotton mill situated in the United States, in which within 30 days before the removal of the product, children under 14 have been employed, or children between 14 and 16 have been employed more than eight hours in a day, or more than six days in any week, or between seven in the evening and six in the morning. The objection urged against the power is that the states have exclusive control over their methods of production and that Congress cannot meddle with them. And taking the proposition in the sense of direct intermeddling, I agree to it and suppose that no one denies it. But if an act is within the powers specifically conferred upon Congress, it seems to me that it is not made any less constitutional because of the indirect effects that it may have however obvious it may be that it will have those effects, and that we are not at liberty upon such grounds to hold it void. The first step in my argument is to make plain what no one is likely to dispute, that the statute in question is within the power expressly given to Congress, if considered only as to its immediate effects, and that, if invalid, it is so only upon some collateral ground. The statute confines itself to prohibiting the carriage of certain goods in interstate or foreign commerce. Congress is given power to regulate such commerce in unqualified terms. It would not be argued today that the power to regulate does not include the power to prohibit. Regulation means the prohibition of something, and when interstate commerce is the matter to be regulated, I cannot doubt that the regulation may prohibit any part of such commerce that Congress sees fit to forbid. The question then is narrowed to whether the exercise of its otherwise constitutional power by Congress can be pronounced unconstitutional because of its possible reaction upon the conduct of the states in a matter upon which I have admitted that they are free from direct control. I should have thought that that matter had been disposed of so fully as to leave no room for doubt. I should have thought that the most conspicuous decisions of this court had made it clear that the power to regulate commerce and other constitutional powers could not be cut down or qualified by the fact that it might interfere with the carrying out of the domestic policy of any state. The manufacture of oleomargarine is as much a matter of state regulation as the manufacture of cotton cloth. Congress levied a tax upon the compound when colored so as to resemble butter that was so great as obviously to prohibit the manufacture and sale. In a very elaborate discussion, the present Chief Justice excluded any inquiry into the purpose of an power of Congress. Fifty years ago, a tax on state banks the obvious purpose and actual effect of which was to drive them, or at least their circulation, out of existence, was sustained. The result constitute the court made short work as to the purpose that you prescribed to the legislative departments of the government limitations upon the exercise of its acknowledged powers. So it well might have been argued that the corporation tax was intended, under the guise of a revenue measure, to secure a control not otherwise belonging to Congress, but the tax was sustained.
The notion that prohibition is any less vision when applied to things now thought evil, I do not understand. But there is any matter upon which civilized countries have agreed far more unanimously than they have with regard to intoxicants and some other matters over which this country is now emotionally aroused, it is the evil of premature and excessive child labor. I should have thought that if we were to introduce our own moral conceptions, where in my opinion they do not belong, this was preeminently a case for upholding the exercise of all of its powers by the United States. But I had thought that the propriety of the exercise of a power admitted to exist in some cases was for the consideration of Congress alone, and that this court always had disavowed the right to intrude its judgment upon questions of policy or morals. It is not for this court to pronounce when prohibition is necessary to regulation, if it ever may be necessary, to say that it is permissible as against strong drink, but not as against the product of ruined lives. The act does not meddle with anything belonging to the states. They may regulate their internal affairs and their domestic commerce as they like, but when they seek to send their products across the state line, they are no longer within their rights. If there were no Constitution and no Congress, their power to cross the line would depend upon their neighbors. Under the Constitution, such commerce belongs not to the states, but to Congress to regulate. It may carry out its views of public policy, whatever indirect effect they may have upon the activities of the states. Instead of being encountered by a prohibitive tariff at her boundaries, the state encounters the public policy of the United States, which it is for Congress to express. The public policy of the United States is shaped with a view to the benefit of the nation as a whole. The national welfare, as understood by Congress, may require a different attitude within its sphere from that of some self-seeking state. It seems to me entirely constitutional for Congress to enforce its understanding by all the means at its command. The years immediately following World War I saw a number of decisions handed down by the Supreme Court on the issue of freedom of speech. Many of the cases were appeals from convictions under the Espionage Act of 1917. In five previous appeals, Holmes had stood with the majority in upholding convictions under that law. In the case of Abrams versus the United States, five Russian aliens, self-proclaimed revolutionists, had printed and distributed in 1918 leaflets denouncing the United States and President Wilson for sending troops to Russia, calling the president a hypocrite and a coward and exhorting the workers of the world to, quote, arise and put down your enemy and mine capitalism, end of quote. Their conviction under the Espionage Act was upheld by the court. Holmes broke with the majority view and filed a strong dissent, expressing what was then an extremely unpopular opinion, in which Justice Louis Brandeis concurred. 
In this case, sentences of 20 years imprisonment have been imposed for the publishing of two leaflets that I believe the defendants had as much right to publish as the government has to publish the Constitution of the United States now vainly invoked by them. Even if I am technically wrong, and enough can be squeezed from these poor and puny anonymities to turn the color of legal litmus paper, I will add, even if what I think the necessary intent were shown, the most nominal punishment seems to me all that possibly could be inflicted, unless the defendants are to be made to suffer, not for what the indictment alleges, but for the creed that they avow, a creed that I believe to be the creed of ignorance and immaturity when honestly held, as I see no reason to doubt that it was held here, but which, although made the subject of examination at the trial, no one has a right even to consider in dealing with the charges before the court. Persecution for the expression of opinions seems to me perfectly logical. If you have no doubt of your premises or your power and want a certain result with all your heart, you naturally express your wishes in law and sweep away all opposition. To allow opposition by speech seems to indicate that you think the speech impotent, as when a man says that he has squared the circle or that you do not care wholeheartedly for the result, or that you doubt either your power or your premises. But when men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct, that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. That, at any rate, is the theory of our Constitution. It is an experiment, as all life is an experiment. Every year, if not every day, we have to wager our salvation upon some prophecy based upon imperfect knowledge. While that experiment is part of our system, I think that we should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions that we loathe and believe to be fraught with death, unless they so imminently threaten immediate interference with the lawful and pressing purposes of the law that an immediate check is required to save the country. I wholly disagree with the argument of the government that the First Amendment left the common law as to seditious libel in force. History seems to me against the notion. I had conceived that the United States, through many years, had shown its repentance for the Sedition Act of 1798 by repaying fines that it imposed. Only the emergency that makes it immediately dangerous to leave the correction of evil counsels to time warrants making any exception to the sweeping command that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Of course, I am speaking only of expressions of opinion and exhortations, which were all that were uttered here. But I regret that I cannot put into more impressive words my belief that in their conviction upon this indictment, 
the defendants were deprived of their rights under the Constitution of the United States. Missouri versus Holland. In 1916, the United States and Great Britain concluded a treaty regulating the killing of migratory birds. In order to carry out the objectives of the treaty, Congress passed in 1918 the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, making it a federal offense to kill certain birds regularly migrating between Canada and the United States. The state of Missouri challenged the legislation and the treaty behind it, claiming that both were an unconstitutional invasion of the rights of the states as protected by the 10th Amendment to the Constitution. The case of Missouri versus Holland was the first decision of the Supreme Court to uphold the right of the national government to protect wildlife. Holmes spoke for a unanimous court. The ground of the bill is that the statute is an unconstitutional interference with the rights reserved to the states by the Tenth Amendment, and that the acts of the defendant done and threatened under that authority invade the sovereign right of the state and contravene its will manifested in statutes. The state also alleges a pecuniary interest as owner of the wild birds within its borders and otherwise, admitted by the government to be sufficient but it is enough that the bill is a reasonable and proper means to assert the alleged quasi-sovereign rights of a state. The Act of July 3, 1918, entitled An Act to Give Effect to the Convention, prohibited the killing, capturing, or selling any of the migratory birds included in the terms of the treaty, except as permitted by regulations compatible with those terms to be made by the Secretary of Agriculture. It is unnecessary to go into any details because, as we have said, the question raised is the general one, whether the treaty and statute are void as an interference with the rights reserved to the states. To answer this question, it is not enough to refer to the Tenth Amendment, reserving the powers not delegated to the United States, because by Article 2, Section 2, the power to make treaties is delegated expressly, and by Article 6, Treaties made under the authority of the United States, along with the Constitution and laws of the United States made in pursuance thereof, are declared the supreme law of the land. If the treaty is valid, there can be no dispute about the validity of the statute under Article I, Section 8, as a necessary and proper means to execute the powers of the government. The language of the Constitution as to the supremacy of treaties being general the question before us is narrowed to an inquiry into the ground upon which the present supposed exception is placed. It is said that a treaty cannot be valid, that there are limits, therefore, to the treaty-making power, and that one such limit is that what an act of Congress could not do unaided in derogation of the powers reserved to the states, a treaty cannot do. Acts of Congress are the supreme law of the land only when made in pursuance of the Constitution, while treaties are declared to be so when made under the authority of the United States. 
It is open to question whether the authority of the United States means more than the formal acts prescribed to make the convention. We do not mean to imply that there are no qualifications to the treaty-making power, but they must be ascertained in a different way. It is obvious that there may be matters of the sharpest exigency for the national well-being that an act of Congress could not deal with, but that a treaty followed by such an act could, and it is not lightly to be assumed that in matters requiring national action, a power which must belong to and somewhere reside in every civilized government is not to be found. We are not yet discussing the particular case before us, but only are considering the validity of the test proposed. With regard to that, we may add that when we are dealing with words that also are a constituent act, like the Constitution of the United States, we must realize that they have called into life a being the development of which could not have been foreseen completely by the most gifted of its begetters. It was enough for them to realize or to hope that they had created an organism. It has taken a century and has cost their successors much sweat and blood to prove that they created a nation. The case before us must be considered in the light of our whole experience and not merely in that of what was said a hundred years ago. The treaty in question does not contravene any prohibitory words to be found in the Constitution. The only question is whether it is forbidden by some invisible radiation from the general terms of the Tenth Amendment. We must consider what this country has become in deciding what that amendment has reserved. The state, as we have intimated, founds its claim of exclusive authority upon an assertion of title to migratory birds.